welcome to season three of Gill Athletics Connection Podcast. If this is your first time here, we're so excited you hit the play button today. If you like what you hear, check out our library of hundreds of past guests that is sure to give you value. For everyone else, we're so happy you've come back. Quick favor, if you haven't already, consider taking a minute to rate and review the podcast. This simple act helps amplify these amazing stories, and we just love to hear your feedback. Heck, we may even read it out loud in a future episode. Okay, that's enough of an intro, right? Let's get to it. See what today's guest has in store for us. All right, one, two, three, back. Here we are. I'm just going to hop right into this because I have a feeling that this this is either going to be the shortest podcast we've ever done with this guest, or it might end up being the longest. So if you've already looked at the timestamp and it says seven hours, I'm sorry, uh, no apologies. Uh, but we've got some amazing stories coming up today. I've known this gentleman for... 20 years over 20 years uh i used to work with them work for him we're just we're great friends a lot of history here help me welcome the wise the wonderful the head coach of the university of lynchburg jim sprecker sprecker how are you doing sir i'm doing great great to see you yeah we don't we don't get to see each other as much as we have in the past that's for sure yeah, no, it's always good. We always have a good time together and share a lot of good stories and have a lot of good laughs. Well, my experience with you has always been you are a a, a man of stories uh, because you've lived and enjoyed uh, some amazing stories with some amazing people. Uh, and so I'm excited to honestly, this will be like the first time I get to like publicly share your stories. Most of your stories, I try to keep personal because it's you know i don't want to embarrass usually myself but uh today we get to just expose them all man <laughs> well let's get started Sprech. what let's... happens at gill stays at gill <laughs> yeah exactly right except for we're recording it so now it is going to be everywhere <laughs> Well, let's uh, hop in our Wayback Machine here, Spreck. Um, you know, coaching is at some point for a coach, coaching flips from something that occurs to you, something that happened to you, know, a coach coached you. Somewhere along the way, a switch flipped and it became like an aha moment, like, oh, I actually could be a coach. Like, th this isn't just something that happens to me. Like, I, this uh, could actually be like a career for me what's that aha moment for you? When did you start thinking like, Oh, I could actually like, I could make a living. This could be my career. It actually started really early for me, probably as early as middle school and uh, growing up in Indiana, uh, I was a big basketball fan. And, uh, you know, instead of paying attention in class, I'd be drawing offensive and defensive basketball schemes and, and then that course then led to play when I played football, I'd be doing the same thing. But uh, by the time I got into high school, I actually started writing up um, technical manuals and cutting out pictures out of Sports Illustrated. And, you know, I take the long jump and talk about, you know, the approach and the takeoff and the landing. And, you know, I would, everything I read about the event, I would write about it. And then to take these pictures, I would cut out and, and add it to the uh, to this manual. And so, uh, by the time I did get to Ball State, uh, I, I was going to be an education major, and I had a clear understanding that that's what I wanted to do. Probably the biggest question was going to be whether it's going to be at the high school level or at the collegiate level. You mentioned you started off with basketball and football. Was there ever 
room in your head for like you were going to be a basketball or football coach or was it or did it become shaped as track and field and that, and that became the the path yeah um like a lot of athletes uh track was actually the last sport i ever did i was a, a four sport athlete but because i guess i was fast in those other sports people suggested i give track a try and who knew that it was going to take me the furthest so yeah yeah, yeah, you know, you know, really up until, you know, maybe my senior year in high school, you know, I thought I'd probably be either a basketball or a football coach. And you mentioned four sports, uh, basketball, because you're in Indiana was a mandatory. So that was one sport. You mentioned football, obviously track. What's what was the fourth sport? Uh, of course, as most kids at that time, little league baseball. Yeah, okay. I was waiting for you to tell me something cool, like, uh, you know, gymnastics is really big in Indiana, maybe uh, swimming and diving, which is also big in like the Indy area. I was, I was, I was waiting to hear something that I did not know. And yeah, of course I knew baseball. I knew that part. So as you finish up your career at your education career at Ball State and you knew, I love this. Like, like I can, I have this picture of you like sitting at your little middle school desk and writing these plays. I I love that kind of picture, especially, you know, knowing you today and uh, in the coaching career you've had. So I love that imagery. What was it? How was your first entree into actual coaching? So you get your undergrad. Um, did you go immediately into a high school? You said you were trying to think of high school versus college. Did you go into a GA position? What was kind of that, that first step into the actual career? Yeah, uh, well, the last thing I did at Ball State was my student teaching. So I finished all my classes. I was doing my student teaching. It looked like I was going to go into high school coaching. But during that downtime, I actually applied. And back then, it was you wrote letters. And I wrote over 100 letters to programs from out the, throughout the country. And... Uh, you know, of course, like most, I didn't hear from, but uh, I did get responses. And when it was all said and done, I actually got had four offers. Uh, the first one is at Syracuse. Uh, the second one was at Tennessee. And then it really boiled down to two. Uh, one was Miami of Ohio, which was in the MAC, same conference uh, with Ball State. And the other one was at Baylor. And it's kind of an interesting story how I chose Baylor. Uh, Miami of Ohio was probably the most natural fit just because uh, I was familiar with them. They knew me. But uh, that year, uh, the NCAA championships were in Indianapolis, my hometown. And during that week of NCAAs, uh, I got to hang out with the Baylor staff and really enjoyed them. And even though I'd never been to, to Waco, Texas, uh, I went down there sight unseen. And so um, it's just kind of, you know, people always ask, how did you, how, how did it all happen? It was really just uh, meeting the people and, and of course, uh, meeting Coach Hart and the rest of the staff uh, really made me feel at home. I love that. I love your age and stage for this example that you just gave there about writing a hundred letters. Cause we just had Kyle Allison on the podcast, head coach at university of St. Francis in Indiana. And he talked about when coming out of college at Manchester, he emailed every coach uh, in Indiana, every college coach. And we've had uh, other guests in the past that have talked about, uh, you know, I sent out 300 emails. And, and my question is always, it's a little bit kind of like the, the, 
um, handwriting letters because you can only send those singularly. You can't just, you know, write one letter and send it, you know, one batch to, three, you know, hundred uh, coaches, but in emails you can, right. You can just blind carbon copy a, a thousand coaches if you want. So I always ask when a coach says, you know, I hustled, I emailed, you know, a hundred coaches or 300 coaches. I always ask, were they individual and personalized or, you know, all one and you just threw everybody in the blind copy or, or God forbid you put everybody in the two or the CC that's, you know, that's a uh, forbidden. So I love this, you know, before internet, you're not that old, but you are pre email and things like that at this point of your uh, career. But I love that, you know, the option was well, letters, a stamp. That's all, that's my only option. And you wrote a hundred letters to a hundred programs. Where, where did, you know, that takes a whole different yeah. workmanship. Where, where did that come from? Well, even more so than that, you know me. And back then, I didn't know how to type. Oh, yeah. No, I'm handwriting. So I know. Those, no. were all, mm -hmm. those were all handwritten letters. Yeah, I, I had no picture <laughs> so, of you uh, typewriting. No, that's just... <laughs> no, you know me. I, I just, I'm just a hard worker. And, um, you know, I cast a big net, not knowing where it was going to take me. And, uh you know, just had faith that, uh, you know, the right doors would open. So you chose Baylor. Uh, I don't know, you know, I only think of not, not only, but I majorly think of Clyde Hart for Baylor was Baylor Baylor back then where they already quarter mile are you and Clyde Hart was the quarter mile King. Yes. Um, they already had a great reputation in the 400. Uh, they had had a number of all Americans, uh, and, you know, they already had that reputation. Uh, it just happened to be uh, my first year at Baylor. Uh, Raymond Pierre really burst onto the scene and really became one of the first international level quarter milers they had. And then there was a little freshman named Michael Johnson that showed up on campus. And uh, between the two of them, they really kind of jump started things to a whole nother level, to an Olympic level. And then after that, Jeremy Warner and Daryl Williamson and, and Sonia Richards and then all, of course, you know, added to that legacy. Raymond Pierre is one of the nicest people in the world, by the way, and, you know, big time starter for track and field meets. I always know I'm at a big meet when I see him. It's like, oh, OK, you know, I don't see him starting too many uh, high school dual meets. Uh, he's always at the big ones. I love him. And, and when I first found out, yeah, I knew him as a starter before that I uh, for track and field before I knew him that he was like this stud quarter miler and I kind of knew he was a Baylor grad so I should have assumed I guess uh but when I found out like he was a really good 400 meter runner as well I was like man I was like that's that's awesome I love people giving back to the sport um and of course Clyde Hart so was that a draw you said you met the guys at the uh national meet in Indianapolis was was coach Hart a big draw I mean he is such a personality and obviously knowledge base is out the wazoo was that a, another big part of the draw of going sight unseen i mean this was before you didn't get to google baylor.edu and go look at pictures of the campus you had no clue what maybe even where waco was no he was a big part of that and not just because of his reputation but if you know coach hart um, he's just a really good person and he's a lot of fun and you know is it's that balance between you know, being at a national championship, which can be in a high um, pressure environment and still be able to crack jokes and enjoy the moment. And so um, it was that gut feeling, you, you know, you hear about that uh, just made me feel at home and made me feel comfortable. 
So what was it like? I mean, you know, Coach Hart, I, I, first I was going to ask if you went golfing with him because I know he uh, was a big golfer at least. Um, but what was it like actually working with him and working, you know, Michael Johnson's this freshman. He's not who he is today. Shout out to, if you're if you're on Twitter, at MJ Gold. He's a great follow. Uh, I'm so uh, honored and blessed and humbled. He follows me, which cracks me up that he would want to see anything that I would post, but, uh, but what, 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 what was it like working with coach Hart? You're impressionable. You're, you know, this is your first coaching job and, and you've got the master coach Hart and you have the student. I mean, this almost sounds like a star Wars thing, right? Like the, 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 the master and the student, but you have like these two amazing people at an amazing time. What was that like? Yeah. Well, the first thing I will tell you, uh, coach Hart at that time was an associate athletic director and so, you know, especially in the fall, he was really busy with those duties. So even my first days of starting coaching, uh, I had a lot of responsibility. And the one thing I always will be grateful for Coach Hart is that uh, we were more than just uh, managers or carrying clipboards. Uh, we actually had a lot of input to what we were doing and a lot of insight. And so he really gave us that sense of, 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 of being able to contribute to the program. And of course, with that comes a lot of pride and it's something I've always remembered to this day. And so uh, I've always empowered my young assistant coaches because of how much it meant to me. And then as far as Michael is concerned, you know, the funny thing about him, you know, he was pretty good in high school. He was like a 21 flat guy, which, you know, you know, anywhere else that's pretty good, but you know, there was a guy in Dallas in his hometown that went 20 flat and set the uh, high school record named Roy Martin. And so in some ways, you know, he was kind of under the shadow of, of you know, one of the best guys in the world, in the country. And, uh, and he wasn't even the fastest guy in his, in his hometown. So, um, so yeah, you knew that uh, he was going to be pretty special. But uh, obviously at that time, we didn't know where talent would take him. Yeah, I was going to say, can you even, I mean, it's one thing to have, it's easy to look backwards, right? And say, oh yeah, you know, MJ, when, uh, when we had him, he ran this one workout and we knew he was going to be the world record holder in the 200 meter dash one day. Uh, but that's probably not true when you're actually in there and you're working with them and seeing the different workouts and he's probably crushing things. Did, did you know you had someone special, which, and but I'll define special as like, oh, he's going to be an all American and uh, maybe he'll win an NCAA title, which is, that's kind of super special. Or was there ever an indication that early in, uh, in working with him that it was like, oh, no, 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 we've got someone off the charts here. This, this, this kid's going to the Olympics and maybe winning a medal. Yeah. Well, there was that moment. Uh, I remember we went to an indoor meet at Texas Tech. Uh, he ran a 300-yard dash, which, of course, nobody runs now. But back then was quite a common distance. And he ran one of the fastest times ever in the 300-yard dash. And so knowing the significance of that, yeah, you realize that, you know, he had something special. The ironic thing at the time, which a lot of people go back and remember about Michael, uh, he had this, you know, back then they called a very unorthodox running technique. You know, you had very low knee lift, you know, basically everything they teach you to do in sprint mechanics, he, he, he went against that. And, um, and so a lot of people were like, wait a second, you can't, you know, run that fast doing it that way. But uh, ironically, you know, later on, 
and I think Coach Hart mentioned this, is that if you look at, you know, the, really the maybe the arguably the three fastest men ever, uh, Jesse Owens, Michael Johnson, and Usain Bolt, uh, two of those three, Jesse and Michael, ran very similar to each other. So maybe we were thinking about it the wrong way. And that in reality, you know, there are different ways uh, of doing it. You know, I always say this, you know, behind me, I have all these books. And in all these books are all the techniques. But sometimes they don't mention the style. Mm. And I think that's where you take a technique and you apply it individually to a person. And that's where I think that's more, even sometimes more important. So as your uh, Will said, exactly. And we don't talk X's and O's. That'll be the closest we get to X's and O's, Brad. Uh, but that was really, that's really good. That's a little bit, you talked about the technique and we talk about the science and the art of coaching. Uh, those books might be the science part and the technique and even the motivation, everything else that goes into it is the, the art part of it. So I, I like that. Uh, as you were working with him um, and, you know, he's become iconic. I mean, it's a little bit, everybody has like the memories of where they were when this world record was broken or this thing happened. And I, I still remember exactly where I was when he ran 1932. It's one of the few times like down to the hundredth of a second I can remember, but I remember exactly where it was, where, where I was, uh, of course the shoes, I mean, you know, that's, that was, that played into it, made part of the culture. Uh, but as a, as an 18, 19 year old kid, he was still a kid when you were with him during that time. Are, are there any, cause I really want to tag him in a social post of something funny. Like he, you know, was a goofball. He, uh, tripped over the curb and every day he came into practice or is there like, if think about your memory bank here and you've got a lot of stories in that memory bank there, uh, is there any, like just a goofball Michael Johnson story you can remember during your time there? Well, probably if I have any claim to fame with any success he had is that uh, he used to have this horrendous start. And the first part of it, he was very powerful. And you could actually hear him ripping the ground with each stride as he exited the blocks. But he also used to stumble a lot. <laughs> and so especially in those early days, I say, oh, try different things. And even to the point where we switched his feet around in the blocks to, uh, you know, see if that was better for him. And as far as I know, when we did that, uh, I think he kept that for the rest of his career. And so that's just one of those moments where it's like, man, this guy can run really fast if he could ever just get away from the blocks. But then the ironic thing is I was also was there at the Atlanta Olympics when he went that 1932. And I'll be daggone if he didn't stumble away from the blocks during that race. So it was almost a full circle moment. Uh, it's funny how sometimes the uh, the littlest things, but it's hard to see those when you're in your box. So to actually think about, you know, just switching the feet you start thinking about everything else like oh the position of the hips in the in the set position or uh you know how how uh, long or short the first stride is and you know it maybe is just something as simple as like oh well just let's why don't we try the front foot to the back and vice versa and look what it did that's amazing so uh you gain amazing experience i can only imagine you i have this picture of you just like every day you've got the uh the traditional composition book and you're just you know 
heart heart says uh, i gotta go to the bathroom and you're writing it down i mean just you know just everything how do i soak in and take everything you didn't have a, a camera to record or you know tweets to like you know heart isms or anything like that so you're just you know soaking it all in uh it was a graduate assistance program so that means you you have to graduate right you have to you eventually have to leave uh or go into a full-time position what what happened after you graduated where, where, where was the next stop yeah, that was interesting because after I finished up Baylor, I was back at that crossroads again. And again, I was deciding, am I going to stay in college coaching or I'm going to go high school? And I did. Mm -hmm. We had that in Texas. They have the Texas coaching school. Mm -hmm. And that was in Fort Worth that year. And once again, I had some offers to go coach high school. And one of those was in Spring, Texas, which is outside of Houston. And at the same time, a buddy of mine, Aaron James, who was at Baylor, uh, said, hey, I think I got a job for us at Wayland Baptist, which uh, it was out there in West Texas. Uh, what he failed to tell me is that that was one job that we were going to split. And so, again, uh, we, we flew out there. And once again, uh, John Creer, who was the head coach there, picked us up at the airport in Lubbock. And all I can see, we're driving to Plainview, Texas, which explains everything about where we were going. And uh, but Coach Creer, again, just that long drive, just talking to him, just had that sense of comfort. And uh, sure enough, we both took that job and we took that twelve thousand dollar job and we split it. And so he got six and I got six. And and uh, I turned basically a. Uh, you know, a very good high school job just to uh, stay in college coaching. Uh, but, uh, you know, again, you never know where life's going to take you. And as much uh, in, you know, of the experience I had coaching out there, uh, that's where I also met my wife, Gwen Ann. And I always thought, you know, Gwen Ann grew up in Brazil, but was going, was out there at Wayland. And it's always her thought, you know, how does a boy from Indiana meet a girl from Brazil? out in Plainview, Texas. And so, and, you know, that of course is something that uh, I'll always be thankful and grateful for. That, that sounds like a good setup for a joke. You know, how does a boy from Indiana meet a girl from Brazil? Uh, that's amazing. I, I love, first of all, shout out to Aaron James. Uh, I, I don't know if you don't know Aaron James, you, you should, because uh, one of the top pole vault coaches around uh, now at South Alabama and every year, they don't just have a kid that qualifies for uh, for the pole vault national championship. They got a kid that's competing for the pole vault national champ. It's it's quite amazing what he does as a vault coach. Uh, but I love that you know you go to Way you had other offers. You you go to Wayland for six thousand dollars now. Spreck, you're you're in a uh, you know starting to move to your 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 um, the last 100 of your 400 meter journey in coaching. You know you're getting you're, you're luckily you're getting close to retirement. I always think that's a celebration. That's not a uh, uh, like a negative thing. That's a positive thing. I love that you can get to retire one day, uh, but you're not that old. Meaning six grand was not a lot of money back. This ain't like we're talking about the 1920s and somebody makes six grand and that's equivalent of like you know 200 grand today. Six grand oh my goodness um I, i'm gonna just simply ask the question why <laughs> well that uh tells you a couple things about me either I, I just truly love the sport or i'm just not a real smart guy and uh hopefully it's the uh sooner but more than the later <laughs> so 
<laughs> well, I'll attest. It's the former, not the latter. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, every once in a while, I have questioned the latter with you, but but vice versa, you have for me as well. So it, it's, it's fair. It's fair. Um, and I love, you know, knowing your wife, Gwen Ann, love her to death and your, uh, which, you know, begets your children who are just awesome people, which is just amazing that they're not even children anymore. They're adults, which uh, you know, as having two kids, my two kids are older than when I knew your two kids back in the day. And now your kids are full-fledged adults with families. And I'm, I look at mine and I'm just like, you're going to do that one day. Holy cow. It, that actually happens. So I love that, you know, you had this fork in the road of, do I go coach high school or do I go to, you know, Plainfield, Plainville, uh, they, they name their towns really well out in the West. I, I, I know level land very well. And it's, it is level. I mean, they don't mince words there. I love it. I don't know how Lubbock came around. I don't know what Lubbock means, but uh, I'm sure it means flat and open and nothing uh, except for championships. They seem to do that pretty well there at, at Texas Tech. Um, but what I wonder is, you know, you, you GA at Baylor uh, during a fantastic time. So you're going to nationals, uh, you know, track and field news is writing articles about you, about Baylor and Hart and uh, MJ and things like that. Uh, and then you go to Wayland. Now, I don't know the status of Wayland. Like maybe Wayland was winning. I, I'm sure they were probably NAI back then. Yeah, we were NAI and they had a great reputation. They had won some national championships. Okay. And, you know, it's like, you know, we're, we're competitive people. And I was definitely going to go somewhere where we could be successful. Was there any ego involved of like, man, I'm at, uh, I don't even know what Baylor might've been like the Southwest conference maybe back then, but you, you were at, you know, you started out a pretty high profile job and now you're going to, and I'm doing air quotes here, small time, you know, Wayland bath. No one's no one outside of Lubbock has maybe heard of Wayland bath and I'm being big generalization here, but I'm wondering how it felt for you ego wise, like, Oh, I'm going to, I'm not at Baylor anymore. I didn't go to Texas and Texas Tech after that. I'm now at Wayland Baptist. Was there any ego hit for you or was it more of like, oh, this is the next stop of, of coaching? I'm coaching. Yeah, no, I really didn't have an ego involved in it. Um, I've always been a man of faith and I know that, you know, I'll be at the right place at the right time. And uh, who knew that really, if, if, as much as Baylor got me into coaching, uh, Wayland may really springboard my career. And um, while we were there, uh, we won both a men's and a women's national title indoors. Um, one thing you may not know, uh, we went to the Drake, I mean, sorry, yeah, the Drake Relays in 1988. And we're still the only team ever to win all six relays in the same year. And um, that, that summer, uh, one of my athletes, went on to the Seoul Olympics, uh, where he won a silver medal uh, for the Jamaican 4x4. Another one of my athletes uh, went on later in his career to win a gold medal um, uh, for the United States in the 4x1 in 2000. And so uh, I had, and, and this is all at a school of about 800 students. And so uh, arguably at that time, we may have been one of the best college teams in the country, regardless of classifications. Uh, we were being flown out west to the Fresno relays and the mm. Mount Sac relays, and even at the Drake relays and the Kansas relays, which we won a lot of things. It was this David versus Goliath thing where this little school out in Texas 
was going up against the big division one programs and beating them head to head. And I remember a story where uh, we were at an indoor meet at Oklahoma city. And that was at that time was where the national championships were. So most of the top teams would go there to, to run and uh, not in a head to head situation, but we ran faster than Baylor did in the four by four. And I remember coach Hart coming up to me afterwards saying, Jim, I know I taught you a lot, but you're not supposed to use this against me. And so that obviously made me feel really good. Yeah, I could only imagine because, again, Coach Hart is such a figure uh, for all the right reasons that, you know, I'd feel I would feel sheepish. I would feel bad like, oh, Coach Hart, I'm so sorry. We got lucky. You know, you must have run your uh, Z team. <laughs> so, you know, you'll, you'll get them, coach. Come on. I mean, I, that's that's amazing. Again, the, the student and the master, like it, it's a little bit of like who, who's going to be the next master. It's quite amazing. Um, so how many years were you there at Wayland? Well, of course, I couldn't live on $6,000 sure. for very long. And so after that one year, I realized I you know needed to move on. Okay. Uh, Aaron uh, stayed there for an additional year, but I needed to go, you know, move on. And uh, again, my next stop was at uh, Louisiana Tech, and it's kind of an interesting story there too. Um, I starting in high, uh, starting in college, uh, I used to, to spend my summers working summer camps in the Catskills of New York, and so uh, I knew about this job opening at Louisiana Tech, and via uh, payphone calls and written letters. Uh, I got this job working for Gary Stanley at Louisiana Tech, uh, only to find out later it was my tenacity, you know, to make sure that, you know, I was going to sell myself, no matter being lo located in rural, uh, the rural cat skills, I was still going to make sure that, uh, you know, I really wanted that job and I was going to get that job. I, you might have defined the word hustle before it became like, you know, the cool, you know, put it hashtag hustle and put it in your bio on social media. Like th this was just pure hustle of calling and writing and just making sure, hey, if you if you are going to reject me, it ain't going to be because I didn't make an effort here. Yeah, I, he says that, that uh, I, I must have said him a letter a day and each letter was something different one letter might be on my philosophy one letter might be on training one letter might be on and he said that's really the thing that impressed him the most was just you know he really just through basically love letters yeah uh, really got to know me and and realized that you know here's a guy that um you know i think can be a really good coach i'm sorry knowing gary knowing you and knowing now the term they were love letters of my coaching philosophy <laughs> uh, so this is where i get to insert a joke now sprecher because so you might have written the coach stanley 25 letters back then stamps were only a penny a piece so it only cost you a quarter to do these love letters <laughs> This episode is going to slowly, maybe quickly devolve into just jokes between Sprecher and I. I'm so sorry. So sorry. Uh, okay, you go to Law Tech. 
you're still not home. You know, we're still not creeping back up to Indiana yet, but you're, you're working your way there at least. Right. Uh, tell me about your time in La Tech because La Tech has been, and I love that Gary was there because Gary was there forever. Just recently retired again. Congratulations to coach Stanley that you get to be at a spot where you can retire. That's a, well, we miss you dearly in the coaching ranks, but just so happy that you can spend time now with friends and family and uh, you know, all the sacrifices that you've made, you, you now get to, I don't don't want to say make up because I want you to be doing those things during your career, but you you get to do those things now without having to worry about the track meet on Saturday and entries and eligibility and all that kind of stuff. Uh, So I love that you're working with coach Stanley there. How was your time at law tech? I mean, that's a pretty historic program that has had a lot of success that I'm afraid a lot of people don't know a lot about that program, unfortunately. Yeah, no, it was an awesome experience. Uh, I've always told people that Gary Stanley, Stanley was one of the great minds in sport and we just really clicked and uh, we really you know found ways of not just making our program better but even making the sport better and I'll give you an example Uh, we used to have a home track meet and we decided to do this on a Saturday night and back then we'd invite the local schools like back then it was called northeastern louisiana and northwestern louisiana and southwestern louisiana and they were all very good programs and we brought them in on a saturday night and we would start the event with a community 5k which would start and finish on the track Uh, we had you know we would have an event named after one of the Louisiana greats, like the Rod Milburn High Hurdles. Um, We would also, uh, during the middle of the meet, we did a fastest kid in the city, 100 meter race to get the parents out. And then we've concluded the event, maybe I shouldn't say this, but we had a fraternity and sorority four by four and the winning and the winning sorority and fraternity got a keg. And only in Louisiana, maybe could you do that. But we really made this huge event. And of course, we had four very good track programs going head to head. And so that's an example where, you know, we, we, we made the sport even better. And I really enjoyed that part of it because, as you know, we're always trying to think now outside the box to make our sport more marketable, uh, not just for the person that goes out there to see some great athletes, but also to find uh, enjoyment out of it as well. At this point of your career, now you still got Coach Hart, I'm going to say, in your hip pocket, meaning you always have him to call, to get advice, to get, uh, you know, work out questions of how you're coaching. Were were there other people uh, that you reached out to? I'm kind of alluding to like a coaching education at this point, and I'm not even sure where coaching education was at this point nationally with uh, TAC or USATF back then. What were you doing at this point at at Law Tech uh, to get better at coaching? Well, that's a great question because it's a really interesting story there. Yes, I did my first education, get my level one, which was TAC, Mm. and it was down in New Orleans. And at that time, we didn't realize it, but uh, friends of mine uh, that uh, I became acquaintances were with was guys like who were from all in Louisiana was like Dave Anderson, who became Mm. one of the great high school coaches in Louisiana, Uh, a guy named Tommy Badon, who was down coaching at Southwest Louisiana, which is, you know, University of Louisiana. Uh, Boo, I remember meeting Boo for the first time 
when he was a high school coach at St. James. And so, and before he got into college coaching, and then of course you had Dan Paff and you had Sam Seams. And so I look back now, you know, and, and the thing is we love track and field. And it was very common for us to load up in a van and drive halfway across the country, get one hotel room, put eight people in that room to go see the Olympic trials, to go see the NCAA championships or the you know senior championships or whatever. So yeah, um, I guess our education was something that we kind of you know formed together. And I don't re- I didn't realize it back then, but now I look back where these guys are at, and it's like, man. I remember, you know, sitting around in these long trips or in those hotel rooms or at meets, sharing these ideas and, you know, with each other. Yeah. Shout out. You mentioned a lot of amazing people there, by the way, but two specific shout outs, Dave Anderson and Boo, both Gill Connections podcast alums, both have been on the podcast. So uh, Dave, actually, I'll give him, I'll give him the OG status. He was one of the first, maybe 20 to 30 people that we had on the show. You're like number 168, right? It took me this long to, to get up the nerve to ask you to get on the podcast. So I had to, had to cut my teeth with people like Boo and Dave and those guys first, you know, I just want to make sure I had my, my chops set before I, I got to you. Um, And I, and I'm glad you actually kind of described and defined coaching education in that way. Cause you know, certainly when I say coaching education and I think about coaching education, I think about the formal side. So US, USATF level ones and level twos, and now with USTFCA's uh, um, academy, uh, Altus doing a great job with coaching education. Uh, but the way you defined it is, I don't know if I want to say it's equally important because it may be more important, but that peer to peer side not only the peer-to-peer of like people that are in the same age and stage of you but having again Clyde Hart someone who at that point had been around a long time and had success being able to just talk things out sometimes helps tremendously when we're putting together our philosophy and we're putting together our actual x's and o's and you know how to how to coach the kids but that part of it also takes into helps bring in all the other aspects of a coach. It's like, Oh, wow. So you do your paperwork. How, Oh, you do budgeting this way. Like there's other topics that are involved in coaching, you know, coaching good or bad. And you know, you, you get to pick, uh, is not just on the track, you know, uh, quarter mile repeats for a miler or whatnot. It, it's it, especially in collegiate. And I shouldn't even say, especially cause this happens in high school. It's scheduling, it's budgeting, it's personnel, it's communication with your assistant coaches and your head coach and your athletic director and compliance. It, it's way more than just, that's why we don't speak X's and O's here because that is one part. And, and certainly it's an important part, but uh, being a coach is a holistic, you, you are, you have so much to do. I think those peer-to-peer coaching education conversations are just as valuable and something that we may not know that we're doing in the moment because you talked about, you know, looking back now, I'm like, oh man, look who I was talking with about track. Uh, Holy crap. That was my own coaching education level 20. (laughs) Right. Uh, But that unofficial coaching education sometimes needs to be intentional, making sure that we are reaching out to other coaches of higher and same status to just pick their brain, so to speak, but being intentional to that. So I love that uh, you're really in a, in a heyday of coaches with Tommy and Boo. And, um, you know, you mentioned Sam, of course. I mean, just amazing people that you had around you that you may not have recognized at the time of like, wow, I've, like, I've got myself surrounded with some pretty good people here. 
who know how to coach pretty good. I, maybe I should uh, listen <laughs> and, and ask questions. I, I like that kind of time space that you're in at that moment. So uh, include Gary in that, by the way, I, I, did, I did not say Gary's name, but Gary's in that as well. So how did, how long were you at Law Tech? How did it go? How did your coach, um, again, not X's and O's, but, you know, philosophy and, and you know, 30,000 foot level, how, how did it change at all during that time at Law Tech? Yeah, uh, I think that was an important part, chapter of my career as well, because, you know, now I didn't have, you know, the Olympic level athletes. Uh, uh, now I was taking kids and from, you know, Louisiana and Arkansas and Texas and really having to learn how to develop talent. And it really kind of shaped the rest of my career. And I found out that that's the thing that I enjoy the most. And we were able to take some of these kids that were under-recruited and all of a sudden make them conference champions, make them national qualifiers. Uh, as a team, we won some conference championships and some really good programs. And uh, it really helped me grow uh, that part of my career is learning how to, you know, one, identify talent. Uh, and two, once I had that talent, really develop that. And so... Uh, the ironic thing, after three years, I felt, and I think I was at 27 at that time uh, in my career, uh, I felt I was ready to be a head coach. And so uh, I actually, at 27, took my first head coaching job uh, at a small school in Arkansas, which at that time was called Arkansas College, which now is called Lion College. And, um, and had, again, in just a short time of one year, had a lot of success. But uh, the reason I link that, because there's probably one other message I want to share, is the reason I was only there for one year was that the AD at uh, Louisiana Tech had left to go to UNC Wilmington. And before I was going my way to Arkansas and before he was going to UNCW, uh, we passed each other in the hall one day. And he just wanted to thank me for the job that I did and realize that, you know, it was a tremendous impact on the program and that, you know, he would always remember that. And so uh, the only reason I was at that school in Arkansas for just that one year is because the following year, that same AD brought me to UNCW. Uh, you know, I wondered, you, you have, and we'll get into it, a long uh, strange, varied, successful career at UNCW. And I've always, you know, I've known you as the indie kid, the Indiana, Indiana guy, Ball State, because that's where we first met uh, with a little Baylor sprinkled in it. I always wondered how you got to UNCW. So you had a former administrator. You were the assistant at Law Tech. But you, you had an administrator that, you know, you had a connection with and uh, they, thank goodness, paid attention to track and saw the impact you made. And that ended up taking you to, to Wilmington, North Carolina as the head coach over there. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, if you've ever been to Wilmington, it was just that first, uh, you know, interview and that, that was pretty easy decision at that point. And, uh, and so, yeah, uh, that, that relationship with Paul Miller, the AD, and just the opportunity. And then again, it was not a very good program. Matter of fact, the first year I was there, we only had 23 athletes 
on each side. And so it was definitely a program uh, we had to build, but I thought that there was the, the pieces in place to be able to do that. I've always, you know, knowing, working with you uh, alongside you and now having seen your career up until today, uh, the two things that I've always thought of you as a coach, one you mentioned is taking that under-recruited kid, the kid that doesn't have the time stamp today to be, um, you know, recognizable, if you will, however you want to define that, uh, and making them really stinking good conference champs, national qualifiers, uh, but also at the same token, uh, I can't pigeonhole you. I'd like to be able to say that you're a sprint coach, that you're a 400 meter coach because of the history with the, you know, with Baylor and things like that. And some of the quarter milers and four by four teams you've had. However, uh, I know you have also coached amazing long jumpers and triple jumpers and pole vaulters, uh, hurdlers. I, 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 you may tell me that I don't know about this, that you also coached amazing distance runners and throwers. I, I'm just not sure. Uh, but was that an early decision for you of like, I'm not going to be a sprints coach. I'm going to be a track coach or did that just kind of fall into place happenstance? No, it was organic. Um, I truly love track and field. Uh, uh, to be honest with you, uh, I've watched every minute of every televised moment of these world championships, mm. including getting up each morning to watch the marathon. So I truly every, love everything about track and field. And to be honest with you, I would say probably my favorite events to coach are the combined events. Mm -hmm. And if you look at that, that takes all the, it takes, you know, the, the sprinting and the jumping and the throwing and the distance training and puts it all in, in under one umbrella. And so I truly are one of those rare breeds that loves every event and, as a result, as a coach, I study every event uh, just because not only do I want to get to know those events better, but I also take bits and pieces of those events to apply it to the sprint, to apply it to the jumps, to make me a better coach in those areas. Yeah, some of the top coaches we've had here on the podcast from Brooks Johnson, um, of course, I had five other names that now escape me. I'm so sorry. Uh, but they they all talk about coaching uh boo Schexnader, uh talk about not pigeonholing yourself and being a sprints coach or a jumps coach which seems very in vogue it, and i'm not talking about today at 2022 you know i've been involved in track for over 20 years uh throughout my entire career it's always vogue to be like i want to be i'm going to be i am the best sprints coach in the world or my conference or my state or whatever uh but some of the best coaches are ha have actually been those coaches that can work with the long jumper today successfully, the shot putter tomorrow, schedule out next uh, Saturday's uh, workout for the 5K kids. I, I mean, in just a general sense of knowing the body and biology and kinesiology, uh, physics all together, uh, that's kind of been a hallmark of like the top, like, you know, there's some really amazing coaches out there. And then there's like this upper echelon of like five <laughs> uh, that seem to be able to run the gamut and, and almost be like that multi-coach being able to hit all the phases of, of track and field. Um, did that, where was that modeled for you? Cause I'm not sure that maybe it was more common back as you were coming through, you know, the Gary Stanley era and Clyde Hart era, et cetera. Um, was it modeled for you or was it just something you said it was organic, but there had to be some point where you were like, 
because we all get to make a decision. We get to be, all right, I'm going to go all in and do none, not all of my coaching education and talk is going to be about sprints and hurdles. Or we get to decide that I'm also going to go to the long jump presentation. I'm also going to go watch the marathon and learn from those guys. W was there a model, a mentor for you on that? Or was it literally just, I love the whole stinking sport, so I'm going to do it all. Yeah, it was a natural love that then that was fueled by a desire to win. Mm. And the only way you can win championships is to have athletes in those events and so that's and so when i went to uncw with 23 athletes i was just you know we, we hosted the conference championship that year and i remember telling and i spent as much time you know talking to my athletes as we did training and i remember right before the championship telling our kids like you know unless in case these other buses don't show up, you know, we're not going to win conference. Matter of fact, we'll be last just because of the number of athletes. But that didn't prevent us from having a great meet. Matter of fact, uh, before I got there, they had had one conference champion. And that meet, we had four conference champions. So even though we did not have the manpower to win a team championship, uh, we had, the, you know, individuals to do that. And then, you know, you start selling a program that, uh, you know, we don't have anything, but you started selling people on a dream. And now fast forward four years later, uh, we're hosting the championship again. These freshmen who came in are now seniors. And, uh, and oh, by the way, we were gonna contend for that championship, but standing in the way was George Mason who, by the way, had just won the indoor national championships. And I'll be daggone if we didn't go out there and win our school's first championship in any sport, but we won it by 60 points. And so, you know, obviously there was a lot of, uh, you know, faith that was put into our program with nothing guaranteed. And here we are literally 25 years later and the, the lives that have been changed with that group of athletes that took that chance will always be something that I'll, I'll cherish. So things are going successful on the track, obviously. I mean, to win a win any conference championships by by 60 points. I mean, you know, that, that's to me, the conference championship is my favorite event throughout the year. I mean, I love NCAAs. It's amazing. Uh, you know, unbelievable performances and team championships are given out, which I love. Uh, uh, and I love a Texas relays. Drake relays is my all time favorite meet. Uh, but there's something about conference because the whole team has to be in sync. I mean, that person who gets eighth place in the women's high jump, that one point I've seen it. You've seen it is the one point that wins the conference championship or sparks emotion that, wow, you know, she wasn't supposed to get eighth place at all. And she got us a point. And then, you know, the person who was supposed to get sixth in the 200 now gets third and those point differentials do it you know it's, i just i just love conference championships so it's going very successfully for you uh on the track you're at that point when you win that you're a fifth year head coach you did a year at now lion college uh you've done four years at uncw how is we, we alluded to you know coaches not just on the track and, and X's and O's, it's all this other stuff that you have to do how are you adjusting from uh really you know Yesterday, you were, uh, you know, an assistant coach, really kind of a first time assistant coach. How were you adjusting to being in the big chair, having to consider schedule and budgets and hiring and staffing and things like that? 
Yeah, uh, I've been blessed. Uh, I've always had great assistants, you know, great assistants make great head coaches. Mm -hmm. And I've always been done one thing. I've always surrounded myself with good people. So whether it's the athletes that I recruit or the people that I have on staff, and I've always tried to, you know, use other people's strengths. And so, you know, of course, you know, back then, you know, I was literally computer illiterate, but yet I had assistants that were really strong. And so, you know, we tried to, to balance our staffs uh, with people that were just good, you know, at, at certain things. And together we created a synergy to make our program great. And so, you know, I knew my limitations. Uh, I knew my passions. And then I tried to surround myself with people that would help balance that. So I have to tell a secret about Sprecher because I'm so proud. I took this long to get him on the podcast because I wasn't sure he knew how to use Zoom. When he says he was computer illiterate, this, that is no like, you know, fun, shtick, um, self-derogatory type of thing. No, 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 no. My man here, when he'd get an email back in the day, would print it write his response and then have someone else email the response, which always killed me because I'm like, you know, like I tried to show him where the reply button was. I'm like, look, man, I you just, just hit right here and type. I know you know how to type. Uh, it, it was it was hard going. But but you have you, you know, the old uh, saying, you know, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. That is not true because my man here uh, has learned a lot of new tricks. I'm so, so proud of you um, uh, to doing that. Uh, you mentioned about surrounding yourself with good people. And I agree, knowing a lot of your assistants, former uh, past assistants and, and current assistants, you, uh, you you have some kind of, I don't know if it's a magnet per se, although, you know, knowing Gwen Ann, you have to have some kind of magic magnet because, you know, you married up, my friend, and you know that better than I do. Uh, so you've always, you know, you've been able to attract great assistants that work extremely hard for you and have skill sets that you don't. And I don't know if that's maybe just part of your interview process or not, but there is you know, we, we, I've said this a hundred times on the podcast, ego is not bad. Bad ego is bad, but you know, ego is that helps drive our competitive spirit, our self-worth, our, uh, want and attention to detail. E ego is good. You, you have ego. You cannot say you are egoless. I'm sorry. No one can. Uh, bad ego is, is bad. Sometimes we can get caught up as the head coach as the, whether you, whether it's that title of having head in front of coach, whether it's just the, you know, I'm the, I'm the big papa here, big mama at the, the, the program. And it's hard for us to let go. It's hard for us to let our assistant be in charge of scheduling uh, travel or to have our assistants help out with uh, being the equipment coach you have, and cause I've seen this uh, firsthand, you have always done a great job of that, that D word delegating. How, how, how has that been natural for you? And it may be hard to answer because you're like, I don't know, just what I do, man. Uh, but you've had to be conscious about allowing assistant coaches to do things that uh, some head coaches would just never let them do. Uh, that's the bad ego part, by the way. Uh, even when they make mistakes, like you have been, you're so graceful in the sense of when someone makes mistakes, it's not the end of the world, you're gone, or that responsibility is taken away from you. It's, oh, okay, well, here's, you know, something to consider next time that might have made this better. How have you been able to be so natural at delegation? Well, part, part of it starts by my, you know, inner being. And again, I'm a man of faith. And so I put my faith in others. Uh, two, I realize, you know, I cannot do everything. And so uh, I know that if I'm not careful, then, it, it, you know, if I get 
you know, too spread out and I'm compromised of the quality that I can produce. Uh, three, I've been, I've had a great, I'm a, you know, I believe in, in empowering people. And I've always believed that when you give people the faith, you give them the, the, um, the opportunities, uh, they're going to, you know, make you proud. And yeah, I mean, we all make mistakes, including us. And so, you know, we learned, but we learned from that. And I have never in my career faulted anybody for making a mistake because most of the time it wasn't a lack of effort or, or trying. It was just, hey, that just didn't work. And, you know, I always believed, hey, as long as you're giving it a good effort, you got a great attitude towards it, then uh, you're going to be successful. We talked about the mentors and peers for the X's and O's part. And, and that's a very common thought process. Uh, I'm very passionate about the coach. Uh, not only I'm very passionate about you off the track, you know, your, your family life and personal life and uh, making sure that those are prioritized higher than the actual coaching part. Um, and we may get to that in a little bit, but on the other side of it, I am interested in helping build uh, well-balanced coaches. So not just a coach that can go out and coach a long jumper amazingly, but also a coach who can do their paperwork uh, that you have to do correctly and recruit correctly and efficiently uh, and proficiently. Uh, were there ever, was there ever a time where you, you were struggling maybe with something in the head coaching duties that you reached out to, maybe it was coach Hart, maybe other people that you reached out and was like, Hey man, just, so how do you handle you know, back then we used to, I don't know, I don't think you still have to do this today, but we used to have to log every one of our phone calls. I think maybe it's on an app or something today, or maybe it's unlimited calls. That's how old I am. The rules have changed. I don't even remember anymore. Uh, but we had to log everything, right? And get them signed by the student uh, advice, athletic council or whatever. Was there ever a time that you reached out to someone about that side, that the non X's and O's, just like, man, I'm struggling with this part of, of, of the head coaching duties was, was there ever that, or, or was it more internal? You just worked with your administrators. No, I mean, we all are, you know, I, I'm a firm believer that if you don't have the answers, go find the answers. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I'm lucky that I do have a lot, a lot of people I can go to. I'll, I'll be honest with you. you. want to talk about the balance. I've always said this. I, I think the best coaches in this country are the high school coaches. Mm -hmm. And you talk about people that have to find balance, that you have to go and teach a full day of school. And then you have another full-time job on top of that with your team. And then, oh, by the way, once you've exhausted all those energies, now you got to go home to your family. And so I've always used a lot of high school mentors as well, as yeah. far as that, because they, they live it firsthand. And so, uh, I've, I, so I've, you know, it, to me, uh, it, if you're successful, it does not matter what level that you're at. Uh, and again, I'm one of the, I'm a sponge. And so I'm going to absorb, you know, every bit of energy and, and, and knowledge that I can, uh, no matter what sport, no matter what level, you know, I'll, I tell people in a joke, I'll, I'll turn on the TV to watch the world championships of tiddlywinks. And I know you know what that is, but if I can learn something about how to win, that's one way that's, you know, I'm going to do whatever it takes. And so, uh, yeah, uh, you know, I'm not afraid to ask for help. The, the sad part about 
turning on ESPN to watch Tiddlywinks is that's probably on there, but not our world champs and our uh, Olympics and uh, Prefontaine and Diamond Leagues. But Tiddlywinks is on there for some reason. I don't know this big uh, Tiddlywink culture that uh, allows them to be on ESPN, not the greatest sport in the world, track and field. Uh, I love how you said sponge. And uh, as, as you are an aspiring head coach one day or an assistant today, I, I really think, you know, Sprecher's advice there, you know, hit rewind and listen to that again about reaching out and asking for help. You, you can't, I'm sorry, no, no one person has been built and designed that can do it all. Uh, we rely on a support system under and above and around us, right? Uh, so fellow head coaches, your assistant coaches, administrators, um, ask for help because if you don't get it, you just sink and then everybody else gets hurt too with that. So I love that, uh, analogy of the sponge and that has always been, um, something I've, I've recognized in you from, from the first time I've, I've met you. So how many years, uh, spoiler alert, how many years on this first stop at UNCW were you there and how many more championships did you win? You won one, the first one in four years. How did it go uh, after that? We kept winning and uh, went from winning the school's <laughs> first championship to eventually winning 11, uh, both times I was there. Uh, to win the most championships, not just uh, at UNCW, but at that time in the conference. And uh, another interesting part about that, we were the, the lowest funded program on campus and we were the lowest funded program in the conference, but that didn't uh, prevent us from winning. And I was there for seven years that first go around. And then uh, a little personal note, um, you know, growing up in Indianapolis, I grew up as the oldest of six and I came from a very close-knit family, and in reality, to this day, I was the only one that moved away, and so at that point in my career, um, um, you know, I had an opportunity to go back where I thought it was important that my children at that point had relationships with their grandparents, mm -hmm. aunts, uncles, cousins, and so, um, uh, I had two great mentors when I was at Ball State. Uh, the first one was Steve Cooksey, which he was my coach for my first three years uh, before he went off to the Naval Academy. Mm -hmm. And the second one was Joe Rogers. And uh, you talk about uh, coaching education. You know, he wrote a lot of the uh, curriculum for coaching education. And uh, at that point, he was going off to West Point. And so uh, not the most opportune time to go back uh, to my alma mater. But uh, I did that and um, uh, started in January. So I remember having a practice on Monday and then uh, being at a meet at Purdue on Saturday. And, uh, and so that was obviously a quick turnaround. Uh, but, you know, as you know, you know, you're always, you, you named your son after your alma mater. And so there's always that draw. And again, as a, a collegiate athlete there, um, the, to go back there, but as much as it was uh, professionally, it was also personally because of family. Yeah, I, I'm always disappointed that Trace's name is not Ball or Card or something. I, I kind of feel like he dropped you dropped the ball on that one. To be real, real frank. Uh, yeah, you go from Wilmington, North Carolina, and again, if he mentioned it earlier, if you haven't been to Wilmington, North Carolina, it's pretty stinking nice. Uh, 
to Muncie, Indiana, which I loved. I'm not putting down Muncie, Indiana, but he mentioned you went in January. So I could literally see you mentioned being at practice on Monday and then having your first meet on Saturday. I thought you were going to say I went from Friday, uh, 80 degrees on the track. And then I went to Ball State and it was January. So it was like 20 degrees <laughs> for, for track. So, um, so what was it like going back? You know, I have we, you may have been one of the first people that kind of sparked this in me, but I have this like real affinity for alums that coach at their alma mater. Cause when you would call as the head men's coach at ball state, when you would call a recruit and tell them how great ball state was, you had one of the most authentic like uh, examples possible. I went to ball state. Like you, you, you can't beat that. Like, Oh man, he, he loves the school so much. He went there, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's just so authentic. So I love that you went back. However, going back, uh, can cause a lot of memories, good and bad and, uh, expectations and false expectations. What was it like actually coming back, uh, to your alma mater to, to coach there? Well, uh, it was an awesome opportunity. It was an amazing experience. Um, once again, you know, we had to get things up and going. Um, and so it started with recruiting. Um, I still remember to this day. Um, and again, as, you know, if you don't know, we had separate men's and women's programs. So I was the men's coach. Uh, Sue Parks was the women's coach who you would later work for. Um, when I got there, I uh, did such a good job of recruiting. I remember having our first practice sitting on the steps of Worthen Arena, our basketball arena. And I had 100 guys sitting there on the steps. And I had a roster limit of 50. And so as I was kind of laying some of the groundwork, I just remember saying, all right, guys, look at the person next to you. I said, at the end of the semester, one of you is gone. Let's get to work. And kind of just started that mentality. And again, uh, we were taking a lot of guys that were kind of under-recruited. A guy like Zach Riley, mm. who, who uh, went on to be a two-time All-American. I remember this story. He was last in the MAC his freshman year in the Hammer. He won the MAC his soft, uh, sophomore year, improved uh, six, uh, 60 feet, and then was a two-time All-American after that. Mm. Uh, I inherited a guy named Adam Shunk, who uh, didn't even – uh, place indoors. I mean, it wasn't even all conference indoors in the high jump. And by that outdoor season, uh, he was fifth in the country. And then I had a little guy that uh, I needed, I had one pole vaulter that had nobody to train with. And so uh, I recruited this guy, if anything, just to have, so my good guy had a training partner. And I'll be daggone if he went from being a 14 footer to almost an 18 footer. And he, too, was a two-time All-American. And so uh, we did it, but we did it with some unlikely uh, characters, I guess. Uh, ones that, you know, in some ways had a little bit of a chip on their shoulder that, you know, they, they had the will to be good, but maybe didn't have the respect. And so uh, this team that had a lot of a hunger to it and a lot of grittiness to it. And I still remember a young man that his first year with me was 51 seconds in the 400. And in two years, he went to the NCAA regionals running 47, almost 47 flat. Mm -hmm. And so we just had a lot of those types of kids in the program that really made the overall program a, a whole lot better. Now, this is the part of the podcast we have to be careful, Spreck, because 
while he's at this stint at Ball State, he meets one of the greatest coaches he's ever gotten the chance to be around. Um, and that was Lane Schwer, but then I also was there. So, <laughs> uh, but I joined the women's staff. We did have a separate staff, which was, I think that was unique to me. Yeah, I guess that's all I knew because I was at Troy before. Uh, I guess at, at, when I coached high school, we were just a boys' high school. So that's all I knew. I went to Troy, we were combined. Uh, head coach of a JUCO, we were combined. And then I go to Ball State, and it's like, oh, yeah, we are completely separate as far as staffs and uh, things like that. Uh, but this is where we got to be careful, Spreck, because we have a ton of stories during our time. I was only there for two years, and we have a ton of stories because as soon as you said Zach Riley, I start thinking, oh, man, the battles between Zach and this kid from Western Michigan uh, who was also good but was much bigger, uh, you know, should have been a thousand times better than Zach. And they battled it left and right every time uh, at conference and then nationals. Uh, this little guy named Dale Cowper, who ends up going to be the head coach at the university of Louisville. I love that. Uh, oh, this guy that was working in uh, uh, Western Michigan at the time, this, this guy named Mike Turk, you know, just doing a good job, but you know, goes on to become the head coach at Illinois. I mean, just an amazing, amazing time, amazing, amazing kids, athletes. Uh, and really, you know, I hold my time again. I was only there for two years. It's, it's it's quite silly, but I hold those two years at Ball State so special because of the people I worked with, including you, including Sue, also an alum. See, I I, I got Sue before I got you on the podcast because you know she was my boss, so I had to make sure I, I took care of Sue. Uh, you know, working with Sue, working for Sue, the uh, GAs, Lane Schweer, other people we had, um, Jermaine Jones uh, on your side. Uh, the kids that we had, Matt Conley's, who goes on now as one of the best throws coaches in the country. But also in our conference, the Scott Jones, the uh, Dennis Mitchells, the uh, Wendell McCravens, Rich Cerrone's. Uh, I mean, we had just amazing uh, people in that conference from coaches down to athletes. Uh, it, it really was something special during that time. And you're at the head of it, coaching at your alma mater during this time. I mean, did it kind of hit you? It's again, it's hard to be in the moment and see that it's much easier when I can look back at, at the uh, perspective of what five years and 10 years and 15 years ago was, did it hit you kind of the special time that you were in during that time at ball state? Well, again, a lot of times it's hindsight is 2020. Mm -hmm. And so no, you don't realize in the moment I did realize though that, you know, arguably the MAC for many decades was probably the best mid-major conference in the country when it came to our sport. And so, you know, I even look back to when I was an athlete and in 1984, uh, a guy named Thomas Jefferson, who ran at Kent State, went on to win the bronze medal in the 200. Uh, also at that time, a guy named Earl Jones uh, ran at Eastern Michigan went on to win the bronze medal in the 800. Hmm. And of course you had Dave Waddle from back in the seventies that was the Olympic champion. And so, uh, so part of that, uh, again, the competitor in me was, yeah, I wanted to be just like when I was at Baylor in the Southwest conference, that was the track conference in the country. I've always been drawn towards competition. And so instead of being intimidated by it, I've actually embraced it because I knew it was going to make, you know, our program better. And so you're right, you know, to, to, you know, contend for a Mac title, you had to beat a lot of good programs, but you had to beat a lot of great coaches. Mm -hmm. to do that. Okay. So it's at this point 
of your journey, Spreck, that we actually have to sprinkle in not just bad news, bad time, bad decisions, just b- capital B, capital A, capital D. Uh, help me with the timing because I, I forget the years. So I was there 01 and 02 season. So it was somewhere around there. Uh, we get a new AD. Now it's it's interesting to talk about this AD who I, I would consider, mm, I wouldn't consider him a friend, but I have a lot of respect for him, even though that, that's what the uh, uh, caveat because of what we're about to talk about. Uh, and maybe I'll tell why I have a positive attitude towards him. But we get this new AD, this guy from Notre Dame. And the funny thing about this guy, uh, great AD, you knew he was going to go on and become quote unquote, big time AD. Uh, his name was Bubba Cunningham. I am quite okay calling him out. I've talked to him about it. We're, we're good here. Uh, but it was funny that, you know, I'm Cunningham. Uh, I'm from Alabama. He was the Notre Dame guy. And, and I remember telling him, I was like, wait, are you sure? I shouldn't, I be the Bubba. Like, I don't know why you're Bubba Cunningham. Like it just doesn't make any sense, but whether it was his decision or, I don't know that anybody makes a decision like this in a vacuum. So board of trustees, et cetera, et cetera, pres- president of the university. I have no idea where all this came from, but the decision was made to drop men's track and field. I remember, I remember D-Day. I remember, I remember the day, uh, you know, just, you talk about, again, all these great things, all these athletes doing amazing. These other coaches were doing, the men's team is doing really well in the, in the Mac. I mean, you think like, oh man, this, this could go on forever. Like I could ride this ride for a long time and then the decision is yeah this ride is over and not only is it over we're closing the ride we're tearing it down uh not many of us thank goodness have the experience of having the worst thing that can happen dropping your program uh talk to us about just what was the feeling what was the emotion anger hate uh give upness uh, you know you could be forgiven for like, you know what, this just, <laughs> I just give up. Uh, what, t- talk to us about that feeling when you found out what was happening to the program, to your program, your alma mater program. Well, the first thing is that, you know, it was personal from the standpoint that, you know, it was my alma mater and everything that I gave to it both as a, an athlete and now as a coach. Um, and at the same time, you, you measure progress in different ways as well. And of course, you know, we had the most All-Americans ever. Mm-hmm. So we were doing well at a national level. Uh, we went from the bottom of the MAC to now at the top of the MAC. Uh, we went from the lowest GPA in the department to the fourth highest GPA in the country. So, you know, the, every step of the way, you're, you're making progress in the way that, you know, you should, you know, as a program. And, but there were things that we didn't have in, in our control at that point. And so, yeah, it was gut-wrenching. It was obviously most gut-wrenching uh, for my athletes because, like you said, it was kind of like the rug being pulled from under us. And so first and foremost, my heart went out to them. Um, again, I don't know if it's an ego thing or whatever, but, you know, at no time, or again, being a man of faith, I wasn't concerned about myself. I knew that I would land on my feet. I knew that, you know, whatever was going to be next, I was going to be okay. I was just, you know, really heartbroken for our athletes and, and you know, and what was, you know, what were they going to do next? 
how, how do you, first of all, I, I don't think that's ego. You, you mentioned that, uh, because ego, it does center around I. So I, I didn't hear you say, oh, what am I going to do? I've got to go find a job. And you have every excuse to have said that because don't forget, Coach Sprecher here has Mrs. Coach Sprecher. He has wife and two kids. Uh, one of them kept thinking they were five years old, even they were much older than that. I don't know. Trace had some issues. We, we, uh, we, we still may be getting past those. Uh but you have a family. So for that to happen, you're losing your job. So a hundred percent, no one would look down and shake their fingers at you for saying, what am I going to do? I have a family. I have to provide. I, what, what are we doing here? And your first reaction was, oh man, the kids, what are they going to do? Are, are some of them going to stay? Do we need to help get them on? What was your, what was the, um, you, you don't have this in your playbook. You have to write this on the fly. <laughs> uh, what, what was your action plan to help the the student athletes move on or stay? Was there an action plan? Was there help? Or was it, um, yeah, yeah, I'm rooting for you, but okay, I've got to go, I got to go get a job. Well, it's a good question. Can I always answer that, that no, nobody has written a playbook about that. And so you do kind of have to figure it out. And, you know, I've, I've always, you know, loved my kids. And so, and each kid was unique to what their needs were going to be or what the next steps were going to be. And just like my, you know, I'd never, I, I, I give advice, but, uh, you know, but that advice is, you know, individual and it just depends on each person. And even during that difficult transition, uh, because I still keep up with most of those athletes from back then, uh, they all landed on their feet and they all went on to do great things. And so, um, no, I, I was kind of figuring it out along the way. And, um, and luckily, you know, you know, we had enough faith in each other to help each other and everybody, you know, you know, ended up in a good spot. Life is not always fair. And I know you believe that. Uh, knowing you and knowing your faithness, uh, which is important to you as the head coach. And you were as blindsided as anybody else. This was not something you knew was coming down the pipeline at all. Cause I know you well enough that if, if there was ever like, Hey, hey next year, we're going to cut your program. You, you wouldn't have recruited. You'd been like, well, I'm not bringing kids in here, uh, but you didn't. It was complete blindside. However, life is not fair as the head coach. I mean, the head coach is a central figure to the program. Uh, the buck stops here, right? Uh, did you take and receive uh, unfairly uh, any animosity from parents, recruits, freshmen, uh, members of the team at all? No, uh, Good. No, not, none at all, to be honest with you. Um, to be honest with you, I found out uh, we were coming back on vacation and uh, we were down in Wilmington uh, on vacation. And I still remember driving down McGalliard, which is the main drag there in Muncie. No, by the way, a little plug for Muncie. Always in recruiting, always called it Funcy, Indiana, the, the, the Fort Lauderdale of Indiana. And, uh, but anyway, I remember, uh, you know, going down McGalliard and on, my, on our way home from vacation and listening to the local radio. And that was the announcement. And that's how I found out about it. It was literally on the radio. So, so yeah, it was definitely a complete uh, blindside. And, uh, and again, you know, I didn't, 
you no, know, and and I didn't have any animosity. You know, I was a sportsman, and one day I thought when I hang it, hang it up, and I be, you know, I would become an athletic director. So I knew the business side of college athletics, and so you know, it, I you know, understand it was a business decision. It was one that was not just made on our campus, but a number of campuses in the conference at that point. And, uh, you know, as, 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 as disappointing as it was, uh, I wasn't going to let it define me. Mm. So you mentioned you were coming back from vacation from Wilmington. So obviously you're not from Wilmington, but obviously that area affected your life. Like that became a, a part of your life. You're going back to vacation, which I, I know it's a popular vacation spot, but you could have gone a lot of other places. Uh, the, the tragedy, the wrong decision happens at Ball State. And lo and behold, so how does it come back that you get to, uh, you, we talk about bounce backs with uh, a kid that goes to a, a division one school, uh, doesn't do well with his grades, goes to a Juco and then bounces back to that original D one. It's called a bounce back. You know, you, you bounce back from UNCW. You went to UNCW, won a couple of conference titles, go to your alma mater and then bounce back to UNCW. How did that come back up? Was the same administrator there? What was the timing that there, the head coaching job was back open? Yeah, uh, again, this timing is everything. And there was our athletic director at that point, um, Paul Miller had retired. Uh, Peg Bradley Doppis was our, our AD. She fought very hard for me to stay at UNCW uh, when I went to Ball State. And uh, when we did drop our program at Ball State, uh, she welcomed me back with open arms uh, back to UNCW. And so a lot of people find that quite fascinating about my career uh, that, uh, yeah, how did you, matter of fact, there was rumors for years that we, we moved because I was gone. I was, I was gone for four years, but there was rumors that we actually even moved back into the old house that we lived in down there in Wilmington. And so, um, you know, obviously the history that I had there before, uh, more importantly, the relationships that I developed uh, made going back uh, very easy and very comfortable. I mean, you won several championships during the first, the, the first part, the first half of the UNCW story. They had to be like, oh, okay, bring him back. Let's let's keep winning. And, and I think you you correct me. It, it kept winning. You kept winning. You came. Did you fall right back into step and start winning, or had there been a dip in those four years and you had to build back up again? Yeah, uh, we had taken a step back. Um, and so, yeah, we did need to, you know, kind of build it back, not from, not from scratch, you know, there was, there was, there were still some pieces in place, but yeah. And more than anything, even more than building back the talent base, it was, you know, building back the culture that we had. And again, you know, we, we were successful because we had kids that worked hard and enjoyed the process. Matter of fact, one thing I'm, I'll always be really proud of is that, you know, I've had clear, nearly 60 of my former athletes become college coaches, and uh, 28 of those uh, were from UNCW. And so, you know, we developed a culture there that, you know, not only did they enjoy the experience while they were there, they thought it was such great fun that they continued on with that. And so uh, as much as anything, going back was just kind of reestablishing some of those foundational uh, values that we had. 
easier the second time because you didn't have to learn some things you already had inherent knowledge of you know location how we kind of do things in the athletic department etc it was easier the second time because one thing that also helped is there was a couple of fifth years that were still there who i'd coached as a fresh when they were freshmen and they kind of helped get the team in you know where they needed to be and they knew me so they knew what i expected and in reality, they were kind of assistant coaches in that first year because they helped me reestablish, you know, those those principles. As you are working through part two, UNCW part two, I feel like there's like a uh, like a movie script here. This is the the uh, the second part. The, the first one is always better than the sequel, but I'm not sure that actually falls true here because of what happened during the sequel uh with many many more championships all americans uh i mean usa qualifiers quite quite impressive uh but as you're going through th that second part of uncw any part of you that's bitter about coaching because of what happened at ball state because it's one thing what happened at ball state what happened at ball state was terrible but it's personal for you because it is your program it's, it's your alma mater any bitterness at all about the profession of coaching at this point after what happened no, absolutely none at all. Matter of fact, you know, Gwen Ann will tell you that, you know, she's the only person that she's met in her life that loves to go to work each day. And I've always told people that, again, maybe that's why I took a job for $6,000, but I always tell people that, you know, I get paid to have a hobby. Mm. And so in reality, no, no bitterness, no regret, no animosity none of that ever creeped in crept into my mind uh, even during that you know during that transition okay because you know that question is going to come up again okay so uh fast forward here Louis. G give us like the uh, 30 second version of the success that you had at uncw part two well again uh we kept on winning uh, kept on winning conference championships uh, we had pin relays champions. Uh, we had nearly 200 NCAA regional qualifiers. Uh, we had all Americans. We had a young lady making national teams, you know, representing Team USA. Uh, again, doing all the things that uh, you you want to, you know, what you want to achieve. And so, you know, professionally, it was going quite well. And plus, you know, we're back in Wilmington and uh, amongst, you know friends and just in a comfort zone. And so life was good. And this is cue the music of like the, uh, the scary music. Uh, you know, you know, something, you know, Jason is right behind you. Freddy Krueger is about to pop out. Uh, the awfulness of college sports as it relates to our track and field uh, starts rearing its ugly head again. Talk to us about, the conversations, the rumors, uh, you don't have to get into it in regards to, you know, people and their decisions, but the uncertainty of your program now at UNCW was coming back again. Yeah, well, I want to first start off by acknowledging that, you know, I had a couple of great assistants, um, Lane Schweer, who was on staff with you on the women's side at Ball State, who was also uh, one of your roommates. Uh, I thought he did such a tremendous job that uh, I brought him down uh, with me to back to UNCW 
to coach both the distance runners and the throwers. The best um, distance also coach, a, throws coach in the country, in my opinion. I love him. He is awesome. Yeah. Hands down. And at the same time, there was a dear friend of mine I'd known for decades, uh, Donald Thomas, who people will tell you just one of the most the gentlemen in the sport, one of the best recruiters in the sport, uh, was looking for a job. And, uh, and he he was our recruiter and then I was basically coaching the sprints and jumps. So uh, between the three of us, you know, we accomplished some amazing things, but more importantly, we really developed this tight knit friendship. Uh, literally we would eat every single lunch every day year round together. And so uh, when we were facing this difficulty of, of possibly, and by the way, it wasn't something that happened overnight. It was something that happened over a three-year period where they were uh, going to drop the sport. They saved it. They made some reductions to the sport. And then they eventually dropped our sport. And uh, just the, inner, the, the story there, uh, again, it's like, you know, deja vu. But you had a choice. And it was either be bitter, be whatever. But we decided that, hey, we, we can't control what others are going to do. We can control what we want to do. Uh, luckily, there was enough pushback from the community, from the sport of track and field, from my friends around the country, that eventually they gave us an opportunity to raise some money. And the stipulation was we were supposed to raise $350,000 in three months. And if we did that, we could keep the sport around for another year. Uh, the biggest hurdle that we did have was our facility. Uh, we had a facility that was built in, I think it was 1988, and had never been resurfaced, anything done since then. So it was on its last leg, and it was in much need of being resurfaced. So uh, to be honest with you, pe people doubted that we could do that. And I'll be daggone in three months if we didn't raise $363,000. And it wasn't like one corporation came in. It was just all these little, you know, $100 checks here, $25 there. Just people really rallied around, not just our program, but the sport. And uh, we were able to save it. Mm. And so, you know, that again, as, as much as you want to say, you know, that was a very difficult time, which it was. Uh, the things that transpired from that, uh, will be something I still to this day have like three reams of emails and stuff from people around the world just you know giving us you know giving us you know faith and giving us encouragement to, to you know you know keep our program and so yeah very difficult time personally but also a very rewarding time professionally yeah you know this is one of those situations you mentioned all the emails and phone calls and uh, people donate donors and things like that that came through. This is one of those times where, you know, you'll never be able to name and say thank you to all of them or even most of them, right? You'll, you know, uh, but I did, I do want to shout out and give you a chance to shout out. Uh, my understanding is there was a, a very prominent selfless coach that came up from their university to be at like a board meeting or something like that. Uh, this coach uh, and I'm gonna let you name name him. You 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 do the big unveil here. Uh, but this coach had no um, reason to go do this, to take time to go advocate for another track program. Uh, 
I just like to give shout outs to when people are selfless and positive and, and this man did it. Do you want to tell the story and do the big unveil here of this, this uh, selfless person? Yeah. Now, again, you really find out who your friends are uh, during these difficult moments. And there was a lot of people. Uh, Curtis Fry down in South Carolina really went above and beyond. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, one person you were mentioning, uh, Harless Matters. Mm -hmm. And at that time, Harless was the head coach at uh, the University of North Carolina. Uh, I'd known him for a long, long time. Uh, one of my former coaches was his high school coach. I knew him when he was the throws coach at Florida State. I even knew him when he was at Western Carolina. So we went way back. But yes, he took the opportunity to drive down from Chapel Hill uh, to sit in on one of our board meetings just to, again, get in front of people to just, you know, to express uh, the value what our program meant, not just to, you know, the sport of track and field, but what it meant to the UNCW campus, what it meant to the greater community. And, it, and it's those things that, um, you know, you're always going to remember. And that's why, you know, you talk about me, how I used to print out my emails. I made sure to print out every single email. And to this day, I have them in these binders. And I don't think I've looked at them since then, to be honest with you. But just the uh, gratitude that I always have in my heart for those. I'll be honest with you. I'll give you one story. Um, we had helped uh, with a, one of the local elementary schools had built a track around its playground. And when they opened it up, we went down there and helped dedicate this track. Now, fast forward some years later, uh, we get a call from that school. And so Lane, Donald, and I go to this elementary school, and we walk out to the back, and there's the entire school all around that track. And then they go on to tell us how they had this jogathon and how the kids in the school raised money for our program. And they presented us with this, which I still have to this day, they presented us with this big oversized check for over $9,000. And, you know, it was a lot of stories like that. Uh, there was a restaurant in town that every single one of their food sales, they would give a percentage of every hmm. bit of their sales back to our program. And uh, so it's those types of things that, uh, you know, you can never thank enough people because, like I said, you know, it's it just hundreds of thousands of people came rallied in our support. So you're not still at UNCW. <laughs> what, what was the impetus to, to, to change, to leave, uh, and now uh, head up the program there at Lynchburg? It's a good question. And, uh, and that point, again, here I am now in my fifties and I'm at a crossroad again. And the obvious thing was stay in Wilmington. I had a lot of friends down there and said, hey, you stay in town, we'll get you a job. And, you know, but my heart was in coaching and I didn't know what. Matter of fact, going back, I uh, reached out to other people for advice. One was Michael Johnson. At that point, you know, he went on to, you know, win a few gold medals, set a few world records and do a little thing. And, and of course, he had his performance center. And so I'd reached out to him and he was quite honest with me about both, you know, working for him at his performance center or even doing some international coaching. 
And I appreciate his, his, his honesty and his vagueness about that. And it was all said and done, I just realized I'm a coach and I want to stay in coaching. But I also realized, you know, the old Andy Griffith, you know, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me, <laughs> that uh, if I was going to stay in coaching, I needed to do something a little different. And so uh, once again, I started asking for advice. And my questions was about Division three coaching. And uh, I'm kind of a purist at heart. You know, I'm, I'm one of those that, you know, is you're a college at student athlete. And, you know, even though it's changed and it's changed a lot recently, uh, I wanted to go somewhere where, you know, co coaching was back to my roots again of, of recruiting kids and coaching kids. So I'm not going to name the schools, but um, I actually had five offers uh, at different division three schools. And, uh, and hopefully this will help some people. Uh, I found, you know, doing my homework and learning about programs, you know, there are different degrees of uh, division three programs, just like division one. Uh, some are more numbers driven. Others are more, more feels like more like a club. And if there are some division three programs that are all about performance and, uh, and that's really what I was looking for was, you know, I want to coach at a high level. And so I was able to come to Lynch, University of Lynchburg back then, Lynchburg College, who had had a tremendous amount of success. Um, Dr. Jack Toms is a Hall of Fame coach. Uh, and so I knew I was going to go somewhere where the sport was valued, where it had history. And, uh, and that's what I was looking for next. Uh, and I want to spend some time on that D3 aspect. So help us get a little bit of the the history how long have you been there now um and, and maybe to a point you know what successes have you had what, what was the program like when you got there but how many years have you been now in the d3 side uh with lynchburg yeah just uh finished my seventh season and and uh and i one thing i do tell people is a couple things uh one you know, no, not knowing now what I knew back then, I probably wish I would have made the switch to Division Three earlier, um, just because it fits my values. Uh, number two, and I made this comment when I was doing the uh, technical symposium uh, this past year at the National Convention, and I meant it in a way that, you know, here I spent my career as a Division One coach, uh, being treated like I was Division Three only to go to a division three program that was treated like we're division one. And really what I meant by that is I learned that, you know, there are big differences in sports, whether you're in college or high school, when it comes from basketball and football on down, and there's big discrepancies in even in division in NCAAs from division one, division two, but division three in, in those uh, main sports. But what I found out in a sport like track and field and what I learned is that it doesn't matter what division you're at, it's what level of support do you have? And so, you know, I came here with a tremendous amount of support. Uh, John Waters, our athletic director, uh, was, is, I tell people, the best athletic director in the country for track and field coach. He understands that, hey, you know what? If I'm good in track and cross country, I'm good in six sports. And by the way, this past season, we won six of our eight conference championships. 
and he understands the value that having, you know, being good in, in this, you know, having a good track and field program. And it also helped that our president at the time, uh, Dr. Ken Guerin, also was a former college track athlete. and He had a passion for the sport. And once he retired, our new president, President Allison uh, Morrison Shetler, uh, has a passion for, for, for sports. And so I just came somewhere where sports was valued. And uh, they really put their money where their, where their heart was, and that was investing in young people. And if I really look back and what, you know, what made my career what it was, is that's what I've always been about. You know, I have this, this saying, I say, love them up. And I share this with all my young coaches and that once you capture a young person's heart, they'll do some amazing things for you. And I just happened to come to an institution that valued that. When we started the podcast back in January of 2020, one of the very intentionalities of interviewing coaches and uplifting and honoring their journeys was to make sure to not get um, overcome by the hype. And, and hype is sometimes a, a negative thing, but it's also a positive thing. And so we were very intentional. Uh, there are some amazing people in the Power Five side of track and field coaching. And, and we've been blessed to have a, a lot of them here from uh, Mouse Holloway's, Brooke Johnson, um, Karen Dennis, Beth Alfred Sullivan. We've had just amazing power five coaches, but we were very intentional that, you know, when you have that title coach, whether it's the high school level, middle school level, division three, NAI, JUCO, division one pro that that's special. Like you, you, we, we want to uplift and honor uh, everyone that is a track and field coach. I also like to be a MythBuster. I almost named this podcast the MythBuster, <laughs> meaning I like to go find these myths that we carry in our profession of coaching and in track and field and bust them. Uh, and so one of the things I'd like to talk with you about, I remember what you said there at that USTFCA convention, because I tweeted it and it was one of my more popular tweets when I tweeted that quote that you said, I spent, I'm a paraphrase. I'm going to find that tweet and retweet it when this comes out, by the way. Um, I spent, you know, X amount of years as D1 being treated like a D3. And now I'm here at D3 and being treated like D1. Now you are paraphrasing what the thought of a D1 versus D3 is and things like that. Right. Um, but, but the, your meaning was, was well taken there. What, is it about D3? You know, you've done seven years there now. What were some of the, so, so the myth we're trying to bust here today is that, oh, you, you know, if you're not a D1, if you're D1, you're a great coach because you're D1. And I love how you talked about the different levels, even in D3, because I think about that same thing in D1. Um, you know, there, it's certainly hard to say that a power, those power five schools, those 65 power five schools are competing against Ball State and Troy University. Really? resource, et cetera. It's not the same. It's not the same sport. Uh, you, you run in the same distance. You ain't playing the same game. Uh, however, inside of power five, there is a stratum there as well. And, and the ones on the bottom part of that power five stratum don't want to admit that publicly. The truth is truth. Okay. Uh, in D three, what coming from a D one side, you know, ball state Baylor, UNCW, a successful coaching on the D1 side. Was there anything on the D3 side that you were concerned about? Was, you know, maybe you were like, oh man, no athletic scholarships? Mm, I, don't, I don't know if I'm gonna be able to operate that way. Uh, academics first, 
possibly, you know, I, I'm generalizing when I say D3 or academics first and, and, and kind of generalizing that it's not that on D1, that's not necessarily true uh, there as well. But were there anything that when you were, were going to accept the Lynchburg job that you were like, you know, I'm going to struggle with this, but then came back to later find out it's like, oh, wait a minute, what was I so worried about? Like, oh, it's just part of life. I, I do this now instead of this over here or anything that you can think of that was just like, oh, I'm scary, but ended up being like this false scare. Absolutely not, nothing, to be honest with you, because um, I did basically did hear what I've always done, which I started back at Louisiana Tech when I first started building programs, and that was building excitement, building opportunities, and yeah, so we, you know, we were over $50,000 to go to school, and uh, we have no scholarships, and yes, uh, we inherited 38 athletes. But within one recruiting cycle, we had grown to 120 athletes. And but again, you got to remember you're you're surrounding yourself with people that love the sport. You know, they're paying that kind of money to be part of your program. And so, you know, it's it's you know, it's sometimes you get kids that make decisions based on dollars, and maybe like we've all learned, that's not the best way to make a decision. But in this situation. You know, you had people that bought into it and, uh, you know, and, and again, maybe we don't have, you know, we have to do a lot of developing, but, you know, I share with people since I've been here, we've, you know, I've had an all American who was a 25 foot long jumper and I took a young lady that played soccer and, and she was a three time all American and then 429 in the 1500. Uh, we took a young lady that her freshman year, she was the last person on the cross country team. And a year later, she's an All-American in cross country. And how do you go from last on the team to one of the best in the country? And even, you know, recently, you know, we, you know, we had a young man that went 346 in the 1500, was all, you know, he's now a three-time All-American. And, and, you know, he was basically a 435 type guy in high school. And, you know, we had a young man who went 149 in the 800 you know, and it was all American indoors and outdoors. So, you know, I guess it's all how you, you know, value, you know, performance. And the one thing I will say about track and field, uh, we run a division one program and, and, and we compete in a division one uh, schedule. If you look at our schedule, you know, we're going across town to Liberty. We're going to meet at VMI, to Virginia Tech, to William and Mary, uh, high point. I mean, we can go compete anywhere against Division One competition, and unlike most Division One or Division Three sports, they don't have those opportunities. So part of us selling our program is we want those that want to compete against the best, not just in Division Three. Yeah, that's the beauty of our sport, right? You're you're right. Uh, Lynchburg is not going to go play Florida State in basketball or football. I don't, I don't even know if Lynchburg has football. They're not going to do that. But in track, you're you're going to line up against the Florida States, the UNCs, the Texas. Uh, best man or woman wins, right? You throw the farthest. It, it doesn't matter what, what the emblem you have. Uh, it's it's who's the best coach and best prepared for for that uh, that competition. Uh, now having experienced and obviously enjoying and thriving in the D3 culture, what are some of the advantages 
that D3 as a coach, and it may be personally or professionally, what are some advantages of being in that D3 environment? Well, uh, I tell people this, and because a lot since I've done this, I've had a lot of people reach out to me uh, for advice in their own journeys. And again, you know, I've never tell people what to do i just tell them what i've experienced and i let them make decisions based on that but uh, it truly it goes back to what we got into the sport for and we simply do two things uh, we recruit athletes and I, I i love recruiting i'm a people person i like selling dreams and sell, selling those opportunities and then you coach and you develop your kids and so that's simply all i do I, I, I recruit and I coach. And so when it comes to, even as the director, when it comes to the paperwork, the administrative side of it, it's, it's a lot less than it is, especially at the division one level. Mm -hmm. And I get to do what I enjoy and that's the coaching aspect of it. And again, I have a tremendous support staff who was a former athlete of mine at UNCW has been my distance coach for the last seven years since I've been here uh, he's done it, you know, he, he is literally, I, I share with everybody, one of the great minds of the sport um, and has made our distance program one of the top programs in the country. Uh, I don't have a lot of full-time help. I have a lot of GAs, but almost every single one of my GAs has been a former athlete who competed for me. And so they come, you know, into the position hitting the ground running because, uh, again, this is our alma mater. They they love this place. They're proud of their program, but because they've been athletes, that when they, even when they step into the coaching role, they're ready to go because they know the system, they know the expectations, and so um, yeah, I, you know, it's it's nothing that you know that nothing that I haven't done in other parts of my career that I do differently here. And so I just tell people based on those things I share with them, you know, make your own mind whether, you know, division three is, is best for you. Okay. So we're going to wrap up with this because you brought it up about advice. Uh, you said you have people that call you. I like to leverage the thousands of listeners that we do have to not just have a one-on-one -on -one phone call conversation. We're going to blow this up and give advice. We have talked today, Sprecher, about, we, we mentioned the ego and bad ego, and I am, my hands up here, uh, I am the example of bad ego when it comes to career, meaning, you know, my whole stint, you know this from working at the same institution as me, my whole career was to get to the SEC, because I grew up in the South, SEC was the number one conference, you want to be the best, you got to beat the best, and so it was all about getting to the SEC. And I've said this, I think I've said this on the podcast, uh, so maybe this isn't breaking news, but maybe for you listening today it is. Uh, so I went to Mississippi State, had an amazing time there. The people, you know, Houston Franks was now at LSU. Heck, one of one of our athletes is now the head coach. I coached this kid, this kid, and now he's the head coach of an SEC program, Chris Woods. Boggles me. It's amazing. He's doing a great job there. So I had a beautiful, amazing time. Al Schmidt is my mentor, like a father to me. So it's not about the people. Steve Dudley, shout out great people that I had at Mississippi state, but I have said routinely that if I would have stayed at ball state, I'd probably still be coaching even today as a, as a 45 year old, actually, as you're listening to this today, uh, now, I just turned 46 last week. That's how old I am. Uh, I didn't have to print out my emails though. I, I, I learned that at an early, early, early slash late age, but my ego was driven on 
the bad ego. I, I, I needed my, my psyche at that time needed that SEC school on my chest or I wasn't worthy in, in my opinion. It took me to 45 to, to my forties to actually learn, you know, people are people, no matter who's on their chest or what they do, what they don't do for a career. Uh, you know, we're, I don't know where you are in your faith journey. I know where you are, Sprague. Uh, but you know, God made you, whether you are this, you know, this, this, it's always terrible to give these top and bottom analogies, but whether you're the garbage man, which I love, I love our garbage. We, I love our garbage people actually at our neighborhood. They're awesome. Uh, to the quote unquote president, whatever, you know, that gap you think it is God made each and every one of you. So you're awesome, right? Someone out there right now. So here's, here's how we're going to, we're going to use that advice you give Spreck. Someone out there right now has an ego of, I can't coach D3. When I was getting back into coaching, Spreck, you probably know this too. You know, I was leaving the poker world and I was going to get back into coaching. And I said, I at least had this, some self-awareness here, but it was, again, it was bad ego. I was like, I am spoiled. I used to work at Mississippi State where we got 10 pairs of shoes for every one of our athletes. We never wanted for anything. I can't go back to a Ball State or a Troy uh, University. I can't. I got to work at a, at a Power 5. And now I look back and I'm like, thank God no one was hiring or hired me because uh, I got to come to Gill and, you know, I'm way happier than where I'm at and, and my wife and kids and all that kind of stuff. But bad ego kept me from maybe taking that D3 job. Like I didn't even apply for a D3 job. So someone out there right now, lots of people maybe out there right now are like D3. Yeah, that's my fallback plan. When in reality, a lot of the D3 coaches that we've had on the program, man happy, healthy, uh, relationship be <laughs> with their family and friends. They have hobbies. They're happy. That's not to say my D one friends right now. Trust me. Mouse Holloway is very happy. <laughs> he's got a great wife, great kids and world champs, and he's doing amazing. So this ain't a comparison. I'm just saying the D three side, the D three coaches, very, very, very happy. So there's coaches out there right now that are just thinking D3 is their fallback plan, or I could never coach that. What advice would you give if someone's looking through the landscape, they're looking at junior college jobs, NAIA jobs, D3, D2, D1, private sector. What advice would you give someone to maybe not pass on that potential D3 opportunity? I will say by experience. Um, I remember going to my first in my first years in division three, I was already on the national championships and cross country, indoor and outdoor. And when we get to these championship meets, and by the way, you need to get to one of those national yeah, championships. I do. The fun that everybody was having, the kids were having a blast. The coaches were so much more laid back and relaxed. And it truly was you know, almost a celebration and not a relief. Hmm. And a lot of times, you know, pressure takes many different uh, forms. And, you know, we've all been there before. And instead of enjoying the moment and celebrating, it was like, oh, I'm so glad that got that over with. And I've instilled that in our program, even though we won 12 national or 12 conference championships now, and we're trying to contend for national championships. We don't ever want to lose the joy of winning and having success because that's what we're, you know, we're here to do that together. And, um, and I think that's one thing that I, I took away. And I remember going to that first national cross country meet and these teams, you know, these powerhouse teams in division three would have charter buses full of their 
athletes and all this stuff and they would all be we'd be in wisconsin and in the snow and and they're all out there with you know just shorts on painted up and we're running all over the course and and i remember you know looking at jake my assistant i said man i said this is this amazing this 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 atmosphere the the, this opportunity that these kids get uh, is just something that I think that we've lost, unfortunately, you know, in college athletics. And so uh, that's one thing I, one bit of advice I would give is, hey, you know, each person is different, but if you want to do something that you enjoy and have fun with, and that's, you're recruiting good kids, developing those kids, and then seeing them enjoy success. Uh, then I think it's an awesome opportunity. Uh, I love how you said, because there's less paperwork, you get to actually do what you got into coaching for in the first place. You, have, you actually get to coach more, like you get to enjoy that side. And and, and, and um, you didn't say this, but I, I think this was an extension of what you were saying there. You get to uh, work even more on the relationship side because you're not just spending hours in the in the office doing paperwork. Um, well, Sprague, you're right. I do need to get to a D3 championship. I have really enjoyed the last couple of years. I've done D2s, which has been fantastic. I, I was a, uh, I was assigned more than D1 side when I first got here, but the last couple of years have been D2 and just, uh, uh, again, amazing people, amazing athletes. Uh, and I have said for a long time, back when I was coaching at Ball State and Mississippi State, I have always said, you want to go maybe find some of the best coaches in the world? They might actually be on the high school side, to be real frank with you. Uh, but go look at the D3 national results, because to your point, uh, a good number of them, I used to say all of them, and I realized that was a falsity, but a good number of those uh, boys, uh, men and women that are at the national championships for D3 were under-recruited. I like that term, actually, were under-recruited. They weren't the the recruits that Division ones were going to look at, and maybe even Division twos. I used to say all of them, but then I realized I'd see some of their marks at a high school. I was like, oh, wait, you, you were actually really good. Like, okay, this isn't just the, uh, the land of under-recruited, but go look at the national results. Go look at what it takes to win. Go look at what it takes to get second, third, fourth place in every event it has evolved to where there is not a weak event a d3 it's amazing I, I, there are marks that i you know i i can't coach myself out of a wet paper bag anymore there are marks that are popping up on d3 uh what was it this year i, I just uh, uh when this is published it was now a couple weeks ago but last night uh had dinner with tyler wingard from christopher newport uh, and we were talking about, you know, this past year's sprints. And I love that it was two different people. What was it? 10, 12 was the 100 meter uh, leader and 2030, 2040 was the 200 meter leader. Yeah, we had two guys that both broke the record, both at like 20.3, 20.4. D3 my butt, because <laughs> you can't tell me that. Every division one, including all power fives, would have taken those two kids in a heartbeat. That to me just proves the level of coaching that is going on at D3 across the country in that in that division in NCAA, man. So uh, I'm just so happy to have one of those examples here. We've had several D3 coaches that have all just been fantastic people who happen to moonlight uh, as coaches for their profession, man. They're just great people first and, and coaches as a profession. And you, Sprecher, uh, I'm really proud of us. We could have made this nothing but an inside joke, inside story podcast. And I think even better is the value that you gave today uh, for those who who are honored enough to to listen to us today, uh, and I'm just so thankful for that. So grateful for your for your time today. Yeah, and I'd like to just finish up by saying that 
you know, I definitely, you know, cherish our friendship. And more importantly, I'm so proud of what you're doing for the profession now, because like you, like I've always said the same thing, you know, we can go to all the conventions and symposiums and learn the X's and the O's, but uh, you know what, that doesn't prepare you for life. And so many times, you know, we're having to deal with things that you do not learn at, at conventions. And so I do like the fact that you shine light on the profession and, and outside of the coaching aspect and, and, you know, whether it be your personal life or, you know, how do you handle certain, you know, situations? Because to be honest with you, you know, if it's not, if we're not facing it now, somewhere down the road, we will. And so if there's little nuggets that we can learn, then maybe when we're in that situation, we'll know how to respond to it. And I appreciate how you just are not there just to make people better coaches, but be people better mentors and better people themselves. Yeah, there's plenty of X's and O's out there. Amazing podcast, Zoom meetings, obviously coaching education. Uh, we purposely do it different here. We purposely do long form and we purposely focus on you, Jim Sprecker, who happens to be a coach, because <laughs> uh, that's what it takes. It, it's people first. It's a people profession. I mean, you, you know, you're dealing with 18 to 22 year old people. I deal with the 22 to 70 year old people who choose to be uh, coaches in this amazing profession. And so uh, thank you for those kind words. You know, we're going to continue doing it. Like I said, we're 168 in uh, I'm like Pokemon, man. I'm trying to catch them all. Uh, you know, there's thousands of coaches. So I got a lot. There's only 52 a year that I get to do. So I'm just going to build and build and build until, uh, until they just pull the plug on me around here, which uh, I'm trying to hide the cord so they can't do that. So we're all, we're all good, man. Uh, Sprecker, one of the most valuable things that you can give me is your time, my friend. And so, you know, spend, Two hours. We, we did good. I've been working to pull these into an hour. I wasn't going to rein this one in, man. I just let this one go. And you know what? Uh, we hit payday, man. You gave so much great advice from your experiences. You've had amazing highs, all Americans, team USA athletes, conference champions, uh, taking the G team GPA from the bottom to the uh, fourth in the nation. Th that's a hat to, to, to a feather in your cap there. Uh, but also the, some of the lowest lows. And I'm so, uh, grateful that you'd be open and authentic and, uh, really share those stories with us. Cause those are important that someone else is going to unfortunately go through some of those experiences. And my hope, my prayer today is that based on your experiences, the things that you and your athletes and assistant coaches and administration had to go through i hope someone is able to learn from that and make it a better situation when it happens to them that they can grow from that and, and make it better for for themselves and for our sport that's our awkward way of saying spreck thank you so much for being here today man uh again just so grateful for you man have an awesome day thank you mike Thanks, Mike. What an incredible journey Coach has been on. So awesome to hear their story in their own words. Tremendous proof of the positive effects coaches make on a daily basis. Help us spread the word of this great journey by sharing on your favorite social media channel. And don't forget to take a minute to rate and review the podcast. You just might get a shout out on a future episode. That's it for today. Join us next week when we'll connect you with another amazing coach.